The history of the church is filled with tipping point moments. Tipping points. Those small, seemingly insignificant, but instantaneous moments in time when the gospel is opened up to a vast new population of people and the kingdom of God explodes. Sometimes those tipping points take the form of a single individual deciding to share God's love in just a slightly different enough way that all of a sudden people who hadn't heard that message before can hear it with brand new ears and they respond in an amazing way. The tipping points of the church happen whenever the church realizes that the church can no longer wait for people to come to us, but that we have to go to them. And whenever the church gets that right, a tipping point happens and the kingdom of God explodes. And I want to share with you this morning that Hyde Park United Methodist is on the verge of just such a tipping point if we will simply follow through. And if we do, we will carve our names along the long history of moments in the church when tipping points happen. Beginning with our earliest days of the church, beginning with stories just like the one that Mike just read for you from Acts 17, one of the very first tipping points in the history of the church. The central character, as you heard, is Paul. We know who Paul is. Paul, the greatest evangelist and missionary in the history of the church, who for many years after his conversion crisscrossed the first century Near Eastern world, sharing the message of God's love all throughout the villages and towns of the Mediterranean. And every time he stopped at a new town, he would follow essentially the same formula. Expect the people to come to him. He would start in the synagogue, in the religious building of the time. And he would preach the message of God's love to the Jews and to the Gentiles who were interested in hearing it. And by and large, that ministry was going very, very well without a reason for him to change. For five years, from Acts chapter 13 to Acts chapter 16, Paul followed the same successful formula. But then, in Acts 17, everything changed started out simple enough. Paul arrived in the city of Athens. We know Athens, the cultural and sociological epicenter of ancient Near Eastern Greece, the high holy city for all of the religious establishment to converge. Paul needed a successful moment in Athens if he were going to spread the message all throughout the Roman Empire. And so he started the way he always started, which is he went to the synagogue and he preached to the Jews in the synagogue. And we don't know how it went. We assume it went well enough. But what we do know is what happened right after that synagogue sermon. He was immediately cornered by Greek philosophers who had gotten word of his message. Epicureans, Stoics, 
Greek philosophers who cornered him right after that sermon and said, Who do you think you are? What makes you think that you're right? What gives you the authority to say these things? And immediately these philosophers took him right out of that synagogue and whisked him out of that religious building and out into the open air. Up on a high hill called Mars Hill. On the very place where philosophers gathered to put people on trial. To test new thoughts to give witness to new teaching, to scrutinize new ideas. And there was Paul in the open air on Mars Hill trying to give a defense for the first time out. And what did he do? He looked around him. And he noticed that Mars Hill, just like the city of Athens itself, was filled with altars and shrines to various gods. People of Athens worshipped a whole myriad of foreign gods. So many gods, so many altars and shrines that one ancient Greek philosopher named Petronius once wrote that in Athens it is easier to find a god than it is to find a human. And here's Paul on Mars Hill looking at all of these altars and he notices one. He notices an altar made out to quote, an unknown God. Just like a seasoned preacher, he took that object and he turned it into a sermon illustration and he reappropriated the cultural images of his time and turned it into an opportunity to preach about Jesus Christ. And he said, this unknown God that you have an altar erected to is none other than the one and only God. And he preached the gospel message to those people. And everything changed from there. From that moment on, he decided not just to preach in the synagogues, but from Acts 17 forward, he also took the message out into the public square, out into the public arena, out where the people were. No longer willing to let people come to him in the synagogues. He was now willing to take that message out to where the people were. And it became a tipping point moment for the church. That's tipping point number one. Tipping point number two happened 2,000 years later. In jolly old England. In the 19th century. And here it is where we meet a very familiar face, an Anglican priest named John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist movement. He grew up in the Church of England. He became an ordained minister in the Church of England. And by and large, he did all sorts of things right by the standards of the Anglican Church. Even a year after his famous Aldersgate conversion experience, he was doing what every good Anglican priest did. He preached sermons from pulpits inside sanctuaries. By and large, very successful. Preach a good sermon. Expect people to come. He bought into that field of dreams, evangelistic strategy. Preach it and they will come. But then something happened. 
Something happened when a fellow preacher and a friend of his named George Whitfield decided to try a slightly different approach to the task of preaching. Not preach it within the confines of a religious building. Not preach it to those who would respond to traditional forms of ministry. But to take the message out into the open fields. Just like Paul did at Mars Hill. And he said one day to John Wesley, his buddy, he said, I'm going to go out and preach in the open fields. You want to come and watch? And history records that John Wesley's reaction to Whitfield's invitation to go watch him preach out in the open fields was something less than accommodating. He wrote in his journal about Whitfield's invitation, I could scarce reconcile myself to this strange way of preaching in the fields of which he, George Whitfield, set me an example on Sunday. Having been all my life, very lately, so tenacious of every point relating to decency and order, that I should have thought that the saving of souls was a sin if it did not happen in a church. But Wesley said yes. He eventually said yes. He watched George Whitfield preach out in the open air, out in the fields where people were, out where they were gathering, out where they were doing business, out where they were socializing, out there where people were hungry spiritually, and that changed everything for John Wesley. Because from that moment on, he realized that the message of the gospel should not be relegated to a religious building, but should be shared out where the people are. And it was at that moment that the Methodist movement experienced a great tipping point. From that moment on, John Wesley would take out to, go out to the fields, out to the coal mines, out into the streets of London, and proclaim and live out the message of God's love. And it fueled the Methodist movement, reaching out to spiritually hungry people who would never step foot in a traditional church campus, but were reached out because the church decided to go out to them. It's tipping point number two. Tipping point number three happened when that Methodist movement crossed the Atlantic Ocean into the infant stages of a brand new country here in America. And it was here that the early colonists and settlers who started to live into the villages and towns all up and down the Atlantic seaboard were reached out to by Methodist preachers. Methodist preachers who did not simply arrive and set up shop and build a church building and expect the settlers to come to them. How John Wesley had advocated for preachers to ride on horseback, to ride out into the rough and rugged wilderness frontiers where people were struggling to live a brand new life here on the American frontier. The circuit riders went from town to town, village to village, reaching out to people wherever they were to connect with people, build relationships with families, do chores with families, preach to them the gospel, instruct their children, offer them communion, then move to the next town on a circuit 
on a cycle where they would connect with people all the time, including one circuit rider named J.C. Lee. J.C. Lee was a 19th century circuit rider who decided to take the message of God's love a little further south than the other circuit riders. He decided to go to a patch of land, a peninsula that we now know as our beloved state of Florida. He would travel as a circuit rider from the panhandle all the way down to the Florida Keys and every part in between, including a little patch of ground on a beautiful little bay where on June 1846, he started a faith community in a beautiful little village that we now know as Tampa. And in effect, he started a faith community that would eventually be called First United Methodist Church in downtown Tampa. In June of 1846, when he consecrated that faith community, he said a prayer over those people, and he concluded that prayer with the words, Oh, may this people become like a little vine that might spread all throughout these lands. And my, oh my, did that little vine spread. That faith community grew in influence and in number, And eventually, years later, in 1899, that little vine spread across the river into a patch of land on Platt Street. And they decided to start a Sunday school that would eventually become a church, that would eventually become our very own Hyde Park United Methodist Church. We were born because of a circuit rider. We were born because a group of people decided that the message of the gospel was not simply something to be kept within a church building, but needed to be spread. Circuit riders did not wait for settlers to come to them. John Wesley did not wait for people to come to a church. Paul no longer waited for people to come to a synagogue. The tipping points of the church always happen when people realize that the message of the gospel needs to be shared out there to a vast new population of people who would not hear it because they would not otherwise want to step foot on a church campus and respond to traditional forms of ministry. And brothers and sisters, that is exactly the kind of tipping point that we are on the verge of right now. In what we are calling the portico. In 2012, Hyde Park United Methodist was given the property at the old First United Methodist Church downtown for us to use in a brand new ministry that we are calling the portico. There have been lots of things happening in the few years since the portico's arrival, and there is much more to happen. But it will not gain strength until and unless all of us, not just the downtown team, not just the people who go to worship down there, but when all of us, support and strengthen and nurture this brand new ministry that puts us out there as circuit riders 
out to a vast new spiritual frontier to reach out to people in downtown Tampa and beyond who need to hear what we have to give them, but they will never want to hear it in a traditional form of ministry here on this church campus. Which begs the question, what is it that we have to give them? Why is the portico necessary? I've been hearing lots of questions about the portico since my arrival about three months ago as your senior pastor. People have asked me various visionary and missional and strategic questions about the portico. But you want to know what it all boils down to? The chief question that we all need an answer to about the portico? Why? Why is the portico necessary? Why do we all need to be a part of it? And I want to answer that question this morning. But I want to begin by answering a more important question, the deeper question about why this whole congregation is necessary. Why Hyde Park United Methodist is necessary. I've been thinking a lot about this in the weeks and months prior to my arrival, about what makes Hyde Park United Methodist Church so important and so unique and so special in our time today. What is it that distinguishes us, not just from other denominations, but other United Methodist churches? Why is Hyde Park necessary? I came across a wonderful book by a business consultant named Simon Sinek. He wrote a very popular book not too long ago called Start With Why. And his premise is very simple. For an organization to succeed, it needs to be clear about its why. He said where some companies succeed, where others fail, it's that they have become clear about their why, not just about their what or their how. You see, Sinek says, lots of organizations are clear about their what, the products that they sell, the services that they offer. A lot of companies are clear about their how, their values, their characteristics, their qualities. But only the organization that is clear about their core purpose, their central belief system, their why, those are the ones that will succeed. And I read that book and thought to myself, what is the why of Hyde Park? And then I heard it from you all. I listened to you. Over the first few weeks of my tenure, one of my favorite questions to all of you was this. Why are you here? Why do you come to Hyde Park? A lot of you begin that answer answering it with what first attracted you to the church. The what, the how. You talk to me about the wonderful ministries to your children and to your youth. You talk to me about dynamic worship wonderful music, engaging preaching. You talk to me about the ministries of service to this community and around the world. Those are wonderful answers about the what and the how. But you know what? Then you started talking to me about the why. Because I asked you the question, why is it that you stay? 
Why do you continue to be a part of this church? And the answers are truly moving. You have said to me that Hyde Park is for you a place where you feel like you belong. Where you can connect and be yourself. Where you don't feel judged. Where you feel like you grow in your faith. Where you feel like you're a part of a community that's greater than yourself. A place where you feel love. That's our why. And you know the best way for me to explain our why? is in our very own core values. Two of our six core values get straight, go straight to the heart of the why of this church. You know why you feel the way you do when you come to this church? Because we are two things. We are warm-hearted and we are open-minded. If I were to explain the why of Hyde Park United Methodist, I would say it this way. We exist in order to make God's love real by being a warm-hearted and open-minded community. Open-minded meaning that we are open to a wide diversity of ideas and opinions and interpretations and thoughts where we don't judge or condescend because we think differently from one another. But we are also warm-hearted, which means we are open to a wide diversity of people where we don't have to look alike or act alike in order for us to love alike. That's our why. And when people identify that why in us, they're not just interested in our products and our services. They buy into our belief system and they find something in themselves that has been hungering for what they've been looking for all their life and they find it here. Even back in the days when I was the associate pastor here, one of the most stirring testimonies I would hear from new members who would come to join the church is that in this church, they find something they've been looking for all their life, but they didn't even know it. That we are a church that makes God's love real by being open-minded and warm-hearted. That's our why. And you know what? There are lots of people who are looking for what we have. And you know what else? There are lots of people who are never going to hear it. Never going to hear it. If we expect them to come to us. We live in a vast new spiritual frontier. A modern day ancient Athens. Where there are altars and shrines and idols to more gods and objects of worship in our culture and our society than we can count. Indeed, there are more things to worship than there are people here today. But they're hungry. They're spiritually starving. They're looking for a place where they can find true love. But they're not willing to find it in a traditional form of ministry. They're not willing to step foot on a campus like this one. They've been burnt by far too many organizations of religion. They have been burnt by far too many organized churches. They've been burnt by far too many preachers who have preached condensation and judgmentalism. Condescension, not condensation. Condensation is what this preacher is doing right now. 
condescension is not something that we offer, and they're hungry for it. And you know what? For these people, they associate Christianity with the opposite of warm-hearted and open-minded. They've seen far too many Christians who are close-minded and cold-hearted, who are not open to ideas or a diversity of people, and they are hungering for our why. But they will never step foot on this campus to find it, and so... This is our tipping point. And this is why the portico exists. And this is why it's our ministry together. Because we have to take our why to them. And that is why, after this service, I'll invite you to take a few steps outside the sanctuary and learn more about the portico at the display in the courtyard. Because we are on the verge of a new year in Portico ministry that will launch this effort in ways that we've never seen before. In 2016, we will launch a brand new worship service and brand new gathered community. We'll also be launching a brand new coffee shop and gathering space right in the heart of downtown Tampa. And we will create opportunities to reach out to people who are least and lost among us, with new emphases on poverty and homelessness. And that portico will become a hub for creativity and beauty and expression by becoming a center for artists to gather together and to express of themselves the deep spiritual stirrings within themselves and this community. The portico will be our circuit rider effort on a brand new spiritual frontier and our effort to reach out to people downtown and beyond who will want to respond to our message but can only find it when we go to them. When you go to the courtyard later this morning, I'll also invite you to pick up one of these, little orange slip of paper that contains a single name, a first name of an actual person who lives in downtown Tampa. I'll invite you to take that slip of paper and hold on to it. Tuck it in your Bible or on your dresser or on your bathroom mirror or on your fridge and pray regularly and often for this person over the upcoming year. This is a person who lives in the new spiritual frontier. This very well may be a person who has been spiritually hungering for something that we have to offer them. This person represents a story and a soul of someone who is wandering lost that we need to reach out to. And it begins with you prayerfully connecting to that person. And you'll also want to hear about ways that you can respond and help out with the portico effort in the courtyard. There will be more stories and more things to say as we roll into 2016. But I don't want anything more to be said until we are all clear about why all of us need to own the portico together. Because just like somebody first reached out to you with the love of God. We need to reach out to them. We conclude these words this morning with the very way that we have concluded every sermon 
this fall series with the recitation of the covenant prayer by John Wesley. In sermons past, we've invited you to pray it individually as you have let its words sink deeply within your spirit and within your own soul. But today, I'll invite us to lift it up together corporately so that as you're saying these words, listen to the voices of those around you. Listen to this community-wide unison effort to lift up this prayer to God to remind ourselves that this church is not its own and that the message of God's love is not our own and that our effort to reach out to those on the spiritual frontier belongs to God. So at this time, brothers and sisters, I invite you to stand as we join together in the Wesley Covenant Prayer. Let us pray. I am no longer my own, but thine. Put me to what thou wilt. Rank me with whom thou wilt. Put me to doing. Put me to suffering. Let me be employed for thee or laid aside for thee, exalted for thee, or brought low for thee. Let me be full, let me be empty, let me have all things, let me have nothing. I freely and heartily yield all things to thy pleasure and disposal. Now, O glorious God, God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Thou art mine, and I am thine, so be it. And the covenant which I have made on earth, let it be ratified in heaven. 